Bismillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in Thumma amma ba'd the ayah says Am abramu amran fa inna mubrimun Am abramu amran fa inna mubrimun The word that repeats itself here is abrama Abrama Very interesting word of the Arabic language You know nowadays when we do uh, construction, engineering Then the way we hold a building together is by beams and columns Steel columns, concrete columns, things like that, that, that pillars that hold the building up. And the thing that holds the beams together is either you weld them together or you, yeah, either you weld them together or you put, you know, concrete or you nail them into each other, things like that. But in old times, the way they did construction is they took two beams and they tied them together. So they would take a really strong kind of rope and one beam is literally tied to the other beam with a rope. Now because this is construction, do you think that that kind of rope or that tying is a strong kind of tying or a weak kind of tying? It's strong because it can cause death if you don't do it carefully. So what they do is they take a rope and they, you know, they take a rope and they double it and they twist it so that it becomes stronger. Then they wrap it each way, twice this way, twice this way, twice this way, twice that way, and then they tie it so that it's super strong, it doesn't come apart. Now, what I'm trying to say then is, the, the word abrama has to do with tying the knot. Literally in Arabic it has to do with tying a knot. But there's a difference between tying your shoes and tying a knot for construction. When you're tying your shoes, you're gonna undo it. When you're tying your knot, the knot for construction, it's set, it's like, part of construction, it's a done deal, it should not come off. It should, under no circumstances should this be undone. So this word was used for tying things for permanent purposes. And the Qur'an uses it to describe or ask a question about the people who do shirk, the people of Makkah, the Quraysh. Allah asks a rhetorical question about them. And he asked the question, Am abramu amran? Have, uh, amran, have they tied the knot when it comes to the decision? What does that mean? Have the mushrikun made a final decision that they will not accept Islam? Have they made a final decision, they're completely set that they are not going to come back to Islam, they will not consider what the Prophet is saying, is it set for them? Is it set for them? Am abramu amran? So now we're comparing two things. The ayah is not talking about construction. The ayah is not talking about tying beams. It's not about a rope. It's actually about the decision. Sometimes you make a decision, but you're not sure. You might go back on it. You might listen to reason. You might appeal. But then sometimes you make a decision, and it's done. So Allah is asking a very powerful question of the Quraysh. Have they made up their mind that no matter what the Prophet says وسلم, no matter what ayah gets revealed, they will not listen. Is that the case? Allah is not saying that is the case. He's asking the question, is that the case? And so He says, Allah says, if that is the case, فَإِنَّا مُبْرِمُونَ Then we have tied the rope also. If they've tied their rope, then we've tied our rope. So now there's two ropes. There's their rope and there's Allah's rope. There's them tying a knot and there's Allah tying a knot. When they tied a knot, I told you that is because they are stubborn and they want to stay on shirk. They don't want to accept Islam. They don't want to accept the oneness of Allah and the message of the Prophet But when Allah ties his rope, what he is saying is fine, I will make you permanent that way. You want to stay like that? 
then I will make sure that I put a rope on top of your rope and it's done. It's sealed. It's settled. You know how Allah says in different places in Quran, Allah says He sealed their hearts. Which means they will not come back. It's sealed. It's locked. There's no change possible anymore. Now that same lock is being described as the, the rope is tied. But what's really remarkable here in this beautiful ayah is not just the comparison between the tying of a rope and the two kinds of ropes, you know, the, Allah's decision and their decision, and the finality and the permanence of these decisions. There's something even more beautiful happening and scary happening here. That actually has a huge lesson for Muslims in, in, in the way we understand our faith. When they tied their rope, am abramu amran, it was actually a verb. It's a verb. Abramu, it's a past tense verb. When Allah ties His rope, it's actually a noun. Inna mubrimun, it's an ism fa'il, for those of you that are familiar. It's, an, it's a noun. Now, I know you don't remember anything from last night because it was really hot. But verbs are, help me out, verbs are temporary and nouns are permanent, interestingly enough. They have made up their mind, but rhetorically Allah is saying perhaps even though they've made it up, there is something temporary in it. And Allah has made up His mind, and yet when Allah makes up His decision, it is somehow what? Permanent. Now how does that play out? How do we understand this? We understand this in the sense that in this life, these people have made up their mind. And if they've made up their mind, fine. Allah will seal their heart. Meaning Allah never seals anybody's heart until they have made up their mind. Allah doesn't just randomly seal people's hearts. You don't get to say, oh Allah decided that this person will be misguided. No, no, no. They had to make that decision first. And they didn't just make that decision casually. They were absolutely firm in that decision, tried and tested. And Allah knows better than anybody else who's committed in their decision. And then Allah decides to seal their heart and tie the rope. But even that guy who made that decision, judgment day comes. He sees the reality of what he was denying. And does he want to go back on his decision? Yep. Perhaps a day will come, disbelievers will wish that they had been Muslims. They will wish that they can go back on their, so they go back to the rope and they're trying to untie it. And then Allah responds, actually, my rope is permanently tied. It's in the noun form. It's permanent. You can't go back on it. You understand? So the two sides of this equation are very beautiful. On the one hand, Allah is even alluding to the fact that as firm as you think you are, you're not that firm. When the time comes, you're going to be going back on it. The next expression I want to share with you is heavy. Oof. It is heavy. Alam tara annahum fi kulli wadin yahimuna. Moving along quickly now to the next one. If you can show it to everybody just so they know where they are. Alam tara annahum fi kulli wadin yahimun. This is an expression in the Quran describing poets. And to first, let me give you an easy translation of Alam Tara Annahum fi Kulli Wadin Yahimun. Describing the poets, Allah says, Don't you know, didn't you see, that they venture off, they wander off into every valley. They wander off into every valley. A couple of things I want to share with you about the word Hama Yahimu. Hama Yahimu is used for a camel when it's looking for water and it's dying of thirst and it's just wandering in aimlessly in any direction. That's Hama Yahimu. Al-Hiyam is also used for love that can get you killed. <laughs> Al-Hiyam is deadly love. The Arabs have 
they, they have 10 degrees of love in their language. There are 10 degrees of love. The 10th one is Al-Hiyam. This is the 10th one. And this is the love that gets you killed. You know, somebody commits suicide because of love, that would be Hiyam. Somebody takes an overdose because of love, that's Al-Hiyam. You know, somebody's killing themselves with depression over love, that's Al-Hiyam. Somebody, Al-Hiyam could be some, a mother who's killing herself with stress over her son. It could be some guy who loves this girl, but she doesn't like him and he's killing himself. That's Al-Hiyam. It's deadly. So the 10th form of love is actually unhealthy. It's, you don't want that. It's kind of a disease. It'll kill you. The one below that, the ninth one, which is the highest you can go if you don't want to die. Okay, the highest you can go. It's called Al-Wala. Wow, Lam and Ha. Al-Wala. And Al-Wala is actually also argued to be the same as Hamza, Lam and Ha, from which we get La ilaha illallah. So the Wala and Ilah are related to each other. Meaning one of the, one of the meanings of Ilah is actually the object of love. And any, any more love than that, and you would what? You'd die. And wala is a kind of love, even though that's not the subject right now, but wala is a kind of love that when you have it, you don't feel pain anymore. Meaning you're really hungry, but because of your love of something, your love of waiting for, you know, you're waiting for, you know, the, I'll give you the example of the mother at the airport again, the mother's waiting for her son to arrive. She hasn't had lunch, but she doesn't feel hungry. Because the son's coming. So that love that fills you, even though you have a need, it's not felt anymore. That's wala. And that's when we say, La ilaha illallah, our iman in Allah and our ibadah to Allah is supposed to be filled with so much love that we don't feel, we don't feel like we're missing anything in life. We're just not missing it. That's one of the meanings of ilah. Anyway, that's on a side note. Coming back to Yahimun. So it's a killer love, a love that will kill you, get, drive you to insanity, where you will be compared to a wandering camel that's looking for water and is about to die. Okay, now Allah gives this description for poets. Didn't you know that they venture, venture off into every valley? Now the thing is, going into, why even mention a valley? The Arabs had this figure of speech, Hama fi kulli wadin. He ventures off, meaning this guy goes everywhere aimlessly, pointlessly. And he doesn't even know what kind of danger he's putting himself into. I want you to visualize the image here. There's a valley, which means to enter the valley. Do you travel upwards or downwards? You have to travel downwards. You're up high on a mountain. You're traveling downwards. Which means your original position was up and your final position will be down. And up, being up is associated with being honored, having dignity, having respect. And putting, coming down is associated with humiliation. So now the poet is being described as someone who's willing to humiliate themselves. I'll come back to that, but the first Im imagery is that of someone ready to put themselves down. Now the, th the other thing is when you go down into a valley, there may be a way down, but there may not be a way up. Isn't that true? You could get down, gravity will help you. But when you're trying to get back out, you might be stuck. And you're not even considering what kind of valley it is. Kulli wadin is nakira, suggesting. I don't even know what kind of valley this is. I don't know if there are snakes down there, dangers down there. I don't know if I'll ever be able to, be able to get out. I don't know. I don't care. I'm going anyway. I'm going anyway. So what is, it's not like Allah is saying, or the Arabs are saying, specifically here, Allah is saying that the poets love 
hiking. It's not what the ayah is talking about. It's not saying that they literally go into valleys. It's not what the subject matter is. So what is the subject matter? Let's explore this a little bit. You have the entertainment industry today, which was back in the day, the movie industry, the Hollywood of the time, the MTV of the time, the, the entire genre of entertainment of the time was poets. You want to go watch a movie 2,000 years ago? You go nighttime, there's a fire in the middle of the desert, one guy is spitting some rhymes, telling a story, and you're imagining it happening. That's your movie. Okay? You want to go to a concert? Same thing. These guys are your movie industry, they're your music industry, and they were also your philosophers. They were also the philosophy professors at the university, all three of these. But I'll get to the philosophy part at the end. Now for these poets, let's, let's forget about poets of that time, let's think about entertainers, entertainers of our time. They have movies, they have concerts, they have songs, videos, music videos, all this stuff, right? So you have this artist and she comes out with a song and people are watching the YouTube video, people are downloading the MP3, people are listening to it, they're sharing it, they're going crazy over it, it's the song's winning awards and all this kind of stuff. How long does the craze last? How long does a song last? It's okay, you can tell me, I understand. <laughs> huh? A year? Do people listen to the same song for a year? Six months? Three months? Maybe six weeks? I'd say about six weeks. People are crazy. After a while, you hear the same song that you've been listening to for three months, and what do you say to someone who's playing? Can you turn that off? God, I'm tired of it. Enough already. You understand? Like when Frozen came out? <laughs> let it go. Just let it go. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? A time comes where first you're crazy about it and everybody's loving it and eventually you just get so agitated by it, you don't want to hear it anymore. I'm tired of it. Why? Because in the world of entertainment, the audience always wants something what? New. You get tired of it and you want to move on. Now the thing is with artists, with actors and singers and entertainers, their entire life revolves around them being appreciated. So when people love the song, they're on a high. But when people hate the song, they say, I need to come up with something else. I feel worthless again. I don't care about the money. I don't care about the awards. I just care about my audience hating me now. I need to get back in their attention again. So I have to write another song. I have to perform another song. So, the, you know, she makes another song, the guy comes up with another song, and people say, ah, you know. The first one was good, this one, I don't know. The original movie was pretty good, the sequel, ah, you know, it's kind of bogus. Does it happen? Now this artist is even more desperate, like, oh, I tried to get their attention again, but I failed. I need to try something different. Because they say, I keep doing the same thing over and over again, I have to come up with something different. I have to venture into a new valley. You see what I'm going with this? I have to venture into a new valley. Oh, maybe if I do something really crazy, 
I'll get attention again. Maybe if I got arrested. Maybe if I did a drug overdose. Maybe if I shaved my head. You know? Maybe if I did this, or, or maybe if I did something so shameless, so scandalous, so disgusting, that even if I, they won't mention me at the award ceremony, at least they will mention me in the tabloids. At least they'll talk about me on Facebook. At least I'll get some attention. Does that cycle happen with artists? Yeah. First they're at the top of the world. Then they, they start losing it. Then the drugs and the arrests and the craziness. And then eventually some disgusting image of them comes out. You know, they reinvent themselves. And every time they reinvent themselves, they get dirtier and dirtier and dirtier. They keep lowering themselves and lowering themselves and lowering themselves. And just when you think they won't venture into another valley, here's another one. Here's another one. And here's another one. Allah says, didn't you see that they venture off into any valley? When people stop listening to their poetry back in the day, they come up with disgusting poetry. They write dirty poetry. They lose their decency because they, they, they think maybe that'll sell better. Let's just lower our standards. And as a result, you know what happens? The standards of an entire society lower. So if you look at singing and song and music and movies and plays from 50 years ago, then you look at them from 40 years ago, then you look at them from 30 years ago, then you go to 20 years and 10 years, and now you will find a, a necessary deterioration in language, in decency, in appropriateness, in shamelessness, there's going to be a, a progression. You'll notice it, you'll see it. It's across cultures. Across cultures. When you have the entertainment industry, it needs to keep reinventing itself. And it, over time, the standards don't go up. The, over time, the standards go down. Until they can't get any lower. Until they just can't get any lower. You know? So now, Allah says about them, these people are just venturing into any valley. They don't care. They don't care about what subject they talk about. What their, you know, what their mission, they don't have no purpose in life. And that's the scary thing to me. These people, Allah is describing, have no purpose. They live for the fans. And you know what's even crazier? The fans live for them. There are people dying for Justin Bieber. They're crying as they're listening to his songs. <laughs> you know? I was just in England. Last week, and the, the stadium was actually sold out with a Bieber concert. Sold out. And I just wondered to myself, man, how many people? This kid, this kid doesn't even know what his own life means. He doesn't, he's, people have, his parents have ruined him. They've ruined this, it's a loss of a human being as far as I'm concerned. I feel sorry for him. And look at how many people are pinning their hopes on him and they want to be like him and they, oh my God. Oh my God. It's such insanity. That that's, that's captured in one breath. The entire industry just described in one, one statement. But the Arabs were, not, the poets were not just the entertainers, they were also the philosophers. And that's the next point I want to make. Their philosophy on life and death and afterlife and what they think about, what are their priorities in life, all of it came from poetry. And for us, in, in the modern world, our philosophy sometimes comes from professors of philosophy, your philosophy class. 
And when you go into your philosophy class, you'll notice that these, in modern philosophy, your philosophers, first of all, they dress strangely and they, like, they have extra weird glasses and their hair is all over the place and they, they say weird things and they're socially awkward and all of that. But usually, they also, they just want to instill one thing in you, especially in Western philosophy courses and degrees. They just want to instill one idea in you. There is no such thing as the absolute truth. That's all. If you say this is correct, then they say, what about that, what about that, what about that? When you say that, what about this one? They'll say, oh, no, 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 what if this, what if this, what if this, what if this? They live in the world, what I like to call, they live in the world of what if. They live in the world of what if. So I've, I've met people who say, well, what if your Quran was actually sent by aliens? <laughs> and they're just really smart and they're laughing at you. And I said, no. Well, what if that's true? <laughs> and if you answer that one, they'll say, well, what if? What if your prophet never existed? What if somebody 200 years ago made up an elaborate hoax and sold the world on it? I say, how stupid can you get? <laughs> and they say, well, what if? And they keep, at, and every time you answer what, what if, what, what happens? The next what if, the next what if, they, you, they go into one valley, you pull them out of that valley, what do they do? Jump into the next one, you pull out of that one, you jump into the next one. They live in the world of what if, which has no end. The Quran teaches you and me to live in the world of what is, not in the world of what if. Allah asks us not to think about what if. Overwhelmingly in the Quran, Allah is saying, look at what is around you. Look at yourself. Look at the reality around you. Look at these ruins of nations that were destroyed. Look at what is. Look at what was. Look at the bird. Look at the tree. Look at your own self. You know, what is. It's a different reality. So if we, we don't venture off into any valley. We have clarity of thought. We have clarity of thought. A lot of you, because, you know, my criticism of myself and my criticism of the Muslim world today is we don't teach clear thinking. How do you think as a Muslim? How do you think as a Muslim? And because we don't give that correct philosophical Quranic foundation of thought. How do you think? How does Allah teach you and me to think correctly? What happens even for Muslims is that they have, their thoughts are all over the place. They also, even Muslims are living in the world of what? If. Instead of living in the world of? What is. Like I tell you, this happens to us all the time, because you know, I'm, you're not in, you're, Alhamdulillah, you're blessed to be in a Muslim country, and you're surrounded by people that are Muslims, and it's really empowering to be here. I feel awesome being here. But when you're living in a place like the United States, and everybody around you is not Muslim, and especially if you're in the East Coast or the West Coast, where people are against religion, generally speaking, and somebody comes up to you and says, you people believe in a horse that can fly? And he took your prophet to the sky? You people believe in that horse? Really? Now a college student who's studying physics and biology and he's studying history, he's intelligent, and he's told, you believe in a flying horse, huh? <laughs> What's he gonna think immediately? Oh, well, uh, mm, actually, uh, you know why he's thinking that? Because his thoughts about Islam are not clear yet. His thoughts aren't clear yet. 
somebody comes and asks me, you believe in a flying horse? I say, yeah. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> I do believe in it. <laughs> you believe in a flying horse? I was like, yeah. You want to know why? Let's sit and talk. Let me tell you why I believe in a flying horse. If you want to talk about it, I'm willing to talk to you about it. And while I'm at it, let me ask you some questions. What do you believe? Let me ask you some questions. You ask me a question, let's ask you some questions. Have we prepared our ummah to engage in that conversation? That's not good. Because then there are people who go into every valley and now they're taking the youth into every valley. And the youth don't know. The, youth, the job of the Muslim youth is not to go into every valley. The job of the Muslim youth is to pull people out of these valleys, man. It's the other way. You know, alam tara annahum fi kulli wadin yahimun. It's heavy. It's heavy stuff. Okay, I'm gonna move along. One more at least. Let me see. What else I got here before I decide which one? I'm leaning towards one of them. Yeah. Okay, one more. I will give you. Wahiya khawiyatun ala urushiha. I love it. Wahiya khawiyatun ala urushiha. You have heard in English translations of the Qur'an that Allah destroyed a village or Allah destroyed a town and it was turned over on its roofs. You ever heard this before? The town was turned over on its roofs? What do you imagine happened? What do you imagine happened? That Allah took the town and like a parata plaster? Like up, flip, down? Right? That's what happened? Actually that's not what happened. That's not what happened. I want to describe to you, this is actually an example of brevity in the Qur'an. Brevity means Allah speaks very briefly and He says a lot. He just gives you an entire picture. So I want to describe what that means. First, I want to give you two meanings of the word Arsh. Two meanings of the word Arsh. The plural is used in the ayah, وَهِيَ خَاوِيَةٌ عَلَىٰ عُرُوشِهَا Arsh is used for the ceiling or the roof of a building. Arsh is also used, interestingly, for the trellis, let me tell you what a trellis is. I didn't know either. Uh, you know, there are some plants that are weak. They cannot stand on their own. So you put a stick in the ground, and then it wraps itself around it. You know what I'm talking about? Like grapevines and things like that? That stick is called a'arsh. The stick itself that you put in the ground is called a'arsh. So a'arsh has two meanings right now. One is the roof, the ceiling. And the second meaning is the stick in the ground. Now, let me start with the stick in the ground. In the story of the two gardeners, Surah Al-Kahf, two gardeners, the gardener's farm was surrounded by palm trees. His farm was surrounded by palm trees, so that if it, it's windy, what protects the, the delicate plants in the middle? The palm trees. So he put palm trees not only because, or date palms even, not only because it will give him fruits, but it was also his security system. Okay? And in the middle, he used to have a'nab wa nakheel, you know, delicate plants. Delicate plants in the middle. Now, the thing is, when Allah decided to destroy his garden, Allah described the description with one phrase, وَهِيَ خَاوِيَةٌ عَلَىٰ عُرُوشِهَا The town was turned over on top of its trellises. In other words, this, those sticks in the middle of the farm, Allah made the winds come and the destruction come that those trees that were there to protect the garden fell on top of the delicate plants. 
So not only did the trees get destroyed, the delicate plants got destroyed. That's the description being given of that garden being destroyed. See, the guy thought this will protect it, and that Allah took his security system and made it the attack. He reversed it, subhanAllah. Now, what about the, gar the nations that are destroyed and Allah says they were turned over on their roofs? The other meaning of the arsh is roof, right? And the towns were turned over on their roof? Let me tell you what that's describing, it's amazing. Let, sometimes Allah destroys a nation by an earthquake. Sometimes a nation is destroyed by fire from the sky, a meteor shower. Sometimes it's a flood. Sometimes it's a tornado or a wind, right? Different kinds of destruction. Now let's imagine one of those happened. Everybody's dead. And the whole town, the buildings are standing but they're damaged, right? The buildings are there but they are damaged. And there are people left or no? They're not left. By the way, when, a building is, when buildings get damaged, the first thing that gets damaged is the roof. It's the most exposed part. And it's the, word that, it's the one that least work is put into, it's the weakest part. Foundation you put in the most work, roof you put in the least work. Because you can't put too heavy of a roof, because it's too much pressure on the rest of the building, so you make it light. So the roof gets damaged, that's why your roof starts leaking if it rains too much. Or you get issues in your roof and it, you know, pieces of it fly off and things like that, right? Now nobody's maintaining these buildings. Nobody's maintaining these buildings. Which means that the roof gets weaker and weaker and weaker and eventually what happens to the roof? Imagine a hundred years went by, nobody's lived in this village. What happens to those roofs? They fall. Now you've got four walls and in the middle what's there? The roof is sitting on the floor now. It caved in. And these, when you go to these old abandoned places, you just see walls, right? Broken down walls. And they're just standing there. Now one of the things that holds the walls together is the pressure from the roof. But no longer, there's no longer a roof. So these walls get exposed to moisture and mold and rust and insects and all of it. Then eventually winds come and what happens to these walls? They fall on top of the already fallen roof. Does this happen overnight or does it take centuries? It takes decades and centuries to do this. Allah is not just telling us that the town was flipped over on the roof. Allah is saying Allah destroyed the town in such a way that generations went by to the point where even whatever walls were left fell on top of the already collapsed roofs. So Allah in this one small phrase isn't just talking about the extent of destruction. Allah is also talking about the span, how long a time went by and nobody could live in these places. It's captured in just one phrase, So this was our first exploration. Our first exploration was, how does Allah use small phrases that Arabs used to use back in the day and say amazing things in the Qur'an. And there are literally thousands of them, but I wanted to give you a sampling. That was section one. Let's begin our work now with section two, before you earn your first break. I gotta give you a story before I give you section two. Man, I, I need to tell you this story. It is epic. So, one of my inspirations in life, I make dua that I get to meet him. My intention is to meet him in December, inshallah. His name is Dr. Fadil Salih Hassam al Rai. He, uh, he's an Iraqi gentleman, he's a scholar of the Quran. And he is very old, he's in his 80s at least. And he used to be pretty much a non Muslim. He was raised in Iraq. 
Uh, he was uh, part of uh, the Communist Party, the Ba'athist Party at one point, back in the day. Yep. And when he was there, he loved language. So he studied linguistics and Arabic, and you know, Arab nationalism. So he studied Arabic under the banner of Arab nationalism, not because of Islam. And one of his interests was that he actually did not want to study the Qur'an. He wanted to study Arabic, but he did not want to study the Qur'an. He refused to study it, it's beneath him. Somebody eventually, and he used to, by the way, you know, he, he was in charge of developing the Arabic curricula for high schools in Baghdad. He was in charge of like the PhD program in Arabic studies and literature at the University of Baghdad. He was, I mean, high up. One of its PhD students challenged him and said, why don't you write a criticism of the Qur'an if you think you're above it? Why don't you write a linguistic criticism? So he did. He decided to write one. And when he did, he wrote a book called uh, the, the title of the book, Nubuwatu Muhammadin min al yaqeen The Prophethood of Muhammad wasallam, My Journey from Doubt to Conviction. In his process of writing the criticism against the Qur'an, he became a believer. I just recently got a copy of the book and I read through it, even though I've been reading his books for some time, and it is, it's a book. That's a must read. Inshallah, hopefully one of my students will translate it. It's fascinating stuff from beginning to end, especially his introduction is awesome. It's awesome. But anyway, so he, now he became a fan of the Qur'an. And he's been studying language and has mastered language for like decades already. Arabic. But never applied it to the Qur'an. So he, I like to say he brought a fresh set of eyes to the Qur'an. Why? Because when people study Arabic, they study Arabic and Qur'an hand in hand. They study them together all the time. And when people get in-depth studies in Arabic, they usually do it because they're getting in-depth studies in the Qur'an. But this man studied Arabic in-depth, not to access the Qur'an, but for Arabic itself. And eventually he applied what he learned to the Qur'an, so it was like he's looking at it from a different angle than everybody else. This has got a different perspective. And boy, is that a different perspective. He started writing book after book after book after book on what makes the Qur'an unique in its expression. Balaghatul Kalima, At-Ta'birul Qur'ani, several books, like, like 16 books under his name. And I read the first one and I was blown away. Then I was read the second one, I was even more blown away. And I read the third one, I was like, okay, this is crazy, I need to meet this man. I had enough. So hopefully, inshallah, he's actually, actually, he used to have a TV show of his own in, in Shariqah. Uh, some of you know about Lamasat Bayaniyah. There are clips of it on YouTube, it's all in Arabic, it's amazing stuff. But he stopped the show, he went back to Baghdad, believe it or not, and he's a professor again, he's teaching. I tried to get him to come to the US and he basically indirectly got word, and he said, uh, I'm teaching, I'm busy. So I'm gonna try to, I'm convinced him to come to Dubai at least in December, and I'm gonna try to go to Dubai, and inshallah hopefully hang out with him for 10 days. So make dua that happens. Really excited to do that. Okay, this is some excerpts from his book. This section is some pieces from his book. It's awesome stuff. So, let's begin. How come the Qur'an uses... What's the word for the city of the Prophet? Anyone know? Medina? Medina to Nabi, really. Medina to Nabi or Al-Medina. What's the other name of it? Yathrib. Six times in the Qur'an, Allah uses Al-Medina. Only once in the Qur'an he uses Yathrib. So why does he use Medina and why does he use Yathrib? 
And if these are both referring to the same city, then actually you should be able to use either one, no problem. You understand? So how come the Qur'an uses one as opposed to the other? That's the question here. The thing is, Medina is not the original name of the city. Medina is the given name of the city. It was only called Medina because it's short for Medina to Nabi, the city of the Prophet Which means it was only called Medina after the Prophet moved there and became the de facto governor of Medina. Once he became the governor of Medina, then it was called Medina to Nabi. Before he moved there, what was its name? Yathrib. Yathrib. So it's interesting that every time we talk about Medina, we find, or we, we talk about the city, we usually find Medina in the Quran. It is as though Allah Himself wants us to know that it's no longer Yathrib, it is actually Medina. It's the Prophet's city now. It's his city now. Every time we use the word Medina for Medina, we don't call it Yathrib anymore. Nobody says, I'm going to Yathrib after Makkah. After Umrah, I'm going to go to Yathrib for a little bit. Nobody says that anymore. They say, I'm going to go where? To Medina, because Allah wanted it to be named this way. But I want you to know something. Let's go back in time. Let's go at the time of the Prophet ﷺ. In Medina, you had a group of people called the hypocrites. The munafiqoon. Yes? And interestingly enough, the munafiqoon, they were not loyal to the Prophet ﷺ. Which means they did not like the fact that this city that used to be Yathrib has now become Medina. So the one group of people who did not like the word Medina is who? The Munafiqun. They didn't like it. But the problem is they don't come out in the open and say, we don't like it, we want it to be Yathrib. They still use what word? Medina. Now why do you think the Munafiq, the hypocrite, who does not like the word Medina, because it describes the fact that the governorship of Medina is in the hands of the Prophet ﷺ, he doesn't like that fact, but he still uses Medina, why does he use it? That's the question. He uses Medina to at least pretend that he is loyal. You understand? He has to show at least to the Prophet ﷺ that he's still Loyal. So in Surah Al-Munafiqoon, the Surah of the Hypocrites, they want to impress the Prophet Jannatan. So, you know, They use the word, the hypocrites use the word Medina. Why? Because they want to tell the Prophet no, 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 you're, you're our leader, sure, you're our leader, we want to obey you. Now here's the amazing lesson Allah teaches us by using Medina and Yathrib. It's not just interesting usage, there are lessons in it. So here's one lesson. The hypocrite stays hidden among the Muslims. Yes, they're very good at hiding among the Muslims. But they can only hide successfully when times are easy. And the hypocrite cannot hide easily when times are difficult. I'll say that again. Hypocrites can blend in easily when times are what? easy and they don't are not able to hide themselves when times are difficult they become exposed when they move to medina no battles have happened yet times are still easy when times are easy they call the city what medina then let's turn to surah al-ahzab surah al-ahzab the city of medina was surrounded by virtually every tribe of arabia the Meccans made an alliance with a bunch of different tribes. Let's attack the city, let's surround it, and once we get in, we will commit genocide, we will leave no one alive. We'll get rid of everyone. And the only thing protecting the city from being torn apart is the trench. 
called the Battle of the Trench, Al-Khunduq. You guys know this. In this situation, the, the hypocrites of Medina, they're inside the city thinking, well, we only went along and we only showed our loyalty because we thought the Muslims are going to win a lot of battles and we'll get rich. But that doesn't look like it's going to happen. It looks like we're all going to get killed. This whole Medina business was not a good deal. So they say, وَقَالُوا يَا أَهْلَ يَثْرِبَ لَا مُقَامَ لَكُمْ فَرْجِعُوا They said, hey, people of Yathrib, you've got no place to go. Let's go back to the way things were. Come on, let's go back and make it what again? Yathrib again. Now just because of the fact that they used the word Yathrib, didn't they prove that they're not loyal to the Prophet ﷺ? So Allah exposes the hypocrites from their own mouth when times are difficult. And they will, from their own mouth, talk a lot about loyalty when times are easy. You don't have to accuse the hypocrite of being a hypocrite. They'll tell you themselves. Just wait for difficult times. That's all. <laughs> That's what Allah Azza wa Jal does in the Quran. So why, why Yathrib and why Medina? I'll give you one more and there's your break. This is actually pretty simple and straightforward. I'll even skip that one. I'll give you Balajibu and Ja'ahum Munthirum Minhum. I love this one. Can you show it on the screen, please? I want to show you guys something. Two ayat in the Quran I'm comparing here. Balajibu, Balajibu, and the, the. Keep showing it, keep showing it. Oh, yeah, one of them, okay. So Balajibu and Wa'ajibu. Balajibu, rather, they found it strange. The ayah underneath it, Wa'ajibu, and they found it strange. Isn't it similar? In both cases, the discussion begins with the, the Mushrikun found something strange. Now what did they find strange? That a warner came to them from among themselves. What did the mushrikun found strange? That a warner from among themselves came. Who is this warner? Who is it talking about? Call it out, call it out. Rasulullah. Rasulullah By the way, you guys better get loud, because I'll stop talking forever. <laughs> when I ask you a question, call it out. Who is the warner? Rasulullah now, the thing is, why is that strange? Let me explain why that's strange. A warner comes with some dangerous information from the outside. There's an army coming from the other side of the mountain. You would have to go outside, see the army, come back and say, hey, there's an army. So a warner has to not be from you, has to be from outside you. What kind of warner is this? He's sitting with us and he's telling us warnings about some world and some angels and some Jahannam and some this and some that. What is he talking about? They find it very strange that he's a warner from among themselves. You understand? Both ayat talk about it. فَقَالَ الْكَافِرُونَ هَذَا شَيْءٌ عَجِيبٌ This believer said, this is a strange thing. When they talk about a warner, this guy is giving us warning, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. They say, this is a strange thing. هَذَا شَيْءٌ عَجِيبٌ let me switch over a little bit and I want to show this to you. Oh, that's so small. Get big. Hada Shayun Ajib. What does it mean, Hada Shayun Ajib? This is a strange thing. This is a strange thing. And the other ayah says, Inna Hada. What's the difference between the first one and the second one? Do they both have hada and shay? But 
Does the first, the second one have something more? What does it have? It has inna. What else is more? The shay has la shay. And then instead of ajib, what are we saying? Ujab. So there are three differences. Can you see that? That there are three differences? One is hadha shay'un ajib. The second one, the first difference is inna. The second difference is la. And the third difference is ujab. You with me? Okay, now go back. I'm reading the second ayah. They find it strange that a warner came to them from among themselves. And the disbeliever said, This is a magician, a liar who keeps lying over and over again. Did he take all of our gods and turn them into one? Did he take all of our aliha and turn them into one? You see where I got that second part from? Now listen. Let me explain these insults against the Prophet What did they call him? Magician and what? Liar. Now, is the Prophet doing any magic tricks? I mean, there's no rabbit out of a hat. There's no staff turning into a snake. There's no water parting. What is he doing? What is he doing? He's reciting Quran. And is Quran something you see or something you hear? Tell me, when you hear something, do you call it magic? Somebody says some words, you're like, oh, magical. <laughs> do you do that? No. When do you use the word magic? When you see something. If I start floating in the air, like, jinn, oh, I knew he was a jinn. Like, you know, like that sort of thing. <laughs> you know, magic is for something that you see. How are they calling the Qur'an magic? They're calling, or they're calling the Prophet ﷺ a magician because the effect it has on people and the effect it has on them, even themselves, they cannot explain it using common sense. And when you cannot explain things through common sense, you call it a mystery of the unknown and the mystery of the unknown is called magic. In other words, this is a kind of belief. You know, we say believers have iman in the ghaib, yes? When someone calls someone a, magi a magician, they also have iman in the ghaib. In other words, in calling Rasulullah wasallam a magician, the kuffar admitted, they admitted that this cannot be explained through common sense. This is above and beyond explanation. It's magic. <laughs> Meaning they already took a leap of faith. We think of him being called a magician as an insult. It's not only an insult, it is an admission of their defeat. That they couldn't explain away the Qur'an. You understand this point? Very heavy, it's really important to understand. Why in the world would they call him a magician? But they didn't just call him a magician, what else did they call him? Kadhab. What's even in the word kadhab, he's a not kadhib. Kadhib means he's a liar. Kadhab means someone who lies over and over and over and over again. Even that is actually not only an insult, it is also a compliment. Let me tell you how. When somebody says Astaghfirullah, how can kadhab be a compliment? How can they how can this be a good thing? Let me tell you. Be patient, I'll tell you. A liar goes to someone and tells a lie. Then his lie gets discovered. When his lie gets discovered, is he able to lie to the same person again? No, he finds a new victim. Then he goes and lies to that person, 
He gets, lie gets discovered, he has to move out of town and go lie somewhere else. And then he goes out away somewhere else because once his lies get called a lie, he gives up. The idea that someone comes to you, you call him a liar, you shoo him away, he comes back to you. You put him away, he comes back to you. You put him away, he doesn't go away. All other liars lie one time, they get caught, and what happens? They go away. This man doesn't stop. He keeps telling me the same lies. In other words, he's not like any other liar I've ever seen. He's really committed, and he keeps coming back. This is actually an admission of the commitment of Rasulullah On the one hand, I will say whatever he's saying is mysteriously magical. But it's still a lie. And I can't, why does he keep coming back? That's Sahirun Kadab. Then they said, why can we not accept this magical truth? Why do we have to call it a lie? Because he's taking all of our gods and turning them into what? One God. Now you tell me. Look at these two ayat. What did they find strange in the first ayah? What did they find strange in the first ayah? Only one thing. What was the one thing? This is that a warner came from among themselves. Is it the same in the second ayah? A warner came among themselves? Yes. But additionally, there are three more things. Additionally, there are three more things. One, he's a magician. Two, he's a perpetual liar. Three, he took all the gods and made them into one. There are three additional things they found strange. The Qur'an is so accurate that by the end of this sentence, Allah recognizes that elsewhere, in another surah entirely, when they only found one thing strange, this is a strange thing. But when they found three more strange things, there should be three more expressions that add to the strangeness that should be said. So inna, certainly, this is truly, la shay, truly. And then ujab, a really strange thing. There are three degrees of emphasis in inna hadha la shay'un ujab because in that ayah there are three more things that are strange. And the Quran does this over and over again all over the text. Like from a linguistics perspective, this is either you believe or call it sihr. <laughs> you call you have to call it magic. I mean, this is I mean. How do you keep track of weight in another surah revealed two years ago? I said, Hada shay'un ujab. This time I'm saying three times the more emphasis or three times the more things that are strange. So I should keep track of that, refer back to that surah, and therefore say, Inna hada la shay'un ujab. You can't do it. You can't keep up. I don't even rem remember what I said five minutes ago. You don't either. <laughs> the Quran remembers what it said in one surah and compares it perfectly to another surah if a similar statement comes up and balances them. It's beyond explanation. It's just beyond explanation.